Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to the show. Uh, good morning to you. Now that I've been criticized for almost a week about not asking you about this last week, uh, both for that reason and for the uh, reason that it seems Israel is a drop more involved, I'll ask you where is the plane and uh, this Malaysia Airlines uh, flight that has now, I guess, officially disappeared. And I know there are a couple of leads. You could update us if there is any information out there. Uh, it, it, is the situation in Israel as serious as some have reported that Israel is now under a higher alert because there's a missing jetliner out there? Uh, yes, there is a, a higher alert, but that's really more for people who monitor Israel's skies and look for a plane. The concern was that, that somebody stole this plane to be used in a terrorist attack. And they obviously had some information about the background of the people involved um, to, to raise this concern, and coming from Malaysia. But uh, I, I don't think that it's been escalated since then. The concern was not just, by the way, in Israel. There are other places, too, where, where this kind of this concern was, uh, it resulted in heightened uh, uh, scrutiny of the uh, flight patterns, but as you know, even this report where from Australia now that the, the first planes came back and couldn't find what right. had been seen on the satellite, so the mystery continues. Malcolm, uh, doesn't the theory seem a little far-fetched that this might be linked to terrorism only because if someone did in fact want access to a plane or wanted to use a plane, for some type of terror attack, there are probably easier ways to obtain one than to hijack one with hundreds of people aboard? Well, there are ways that they can get them and they can buy them, but then you have a record here. The feeling was that this was uh, going to be taken to some isolated place, perhaps. I mean, it's all speculative, and nobody has a real understanding or a theory about what happened, and nobody certainly knows. Uh, so everything is speculative, and, and you have all sorts of um, uh, people and, and websites and others who are speculating, and then it becomes a news headline that, that that people had associations. And as far as I know from the security people we spoke to right now, nobody has a clue. Right, and um, and knowing someone of your uh, of the way you pay attention to the news, you 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 probably know less than when you started reading about the story, right? Exactly. <laughs> Every day we know less than uh, we knew because at first there were some theories, and because the the disabling of the uh, of the guidance systems and navigational systems and the uh, system that the pilot had in his house, and then they said something's missing from it, right. and it's been reprogrammed. So all, every mystery has, has only grown over the days since the disappearance. Because of your travels and your connections, you're, you're well acquainted with the sophistication or lack thereof of, um, uh, of parallel departments, let's say, in other countries compared to the U.S. Is it fair to say what many are saying, that if this would have happened, you know, God forbid, to a, a U.S. plane or something closer to this area of the world, that our technology, you know, certainly would never have been uh, uh, fooled to the point that the Malaysian technology was? Look, if somebody wants to bypass the systems that have been set up, it's possible to do it. Uh, don't forget this is over a vast area of water, and it, it got caught between areas uh, of satellite coverage. 
So obviously over the United States, there's far more coverage that uh, would have detected, you know, an, uh, such an aberrant behavior or pattern. But when you show, if a pilot wants to shut off all the systems and wants to evade the monitoring devices, it can be done. All right. No matter where around the world, no matter how sophisticated the you technology. Flying it over the Atlantic Ocean, you also could lose it. All right, humor me for my weekend cocktail party. Which is the bigger mystery, Amelia Earhart or this one? What do you think? I don't know who they'll find first. <laughs> question. And I don't mean to joke around. We know there are a lot of people that uh, whose lives are at stake, and God knows what has happened to them at this point. But it just uh, the whole mystery and the way the uh, world is gripped by it is just unbelievable. So there was a vote in Crimea, correct? They did vote to become part of Russia. They did vote. They did become part of Russia. And the U.S. has a right to not recognize the results of that vote. Every country has uh, a right to uh, to declare that it was illegal, that it wasn't appropriate, that it was uh, staged. Uh, but the fact is that the, the overwhelming results that the Russians or pro-Russian forces claim, and that they they made the declaration, it seems that it's moving ahead. The EU today moved uh, to sign an association accord with uh, the Ukraine. I don't think it's a full association accord. From, uh, my understanding would probably be the elements of it, but not the full thing. But it is a message, and it's a you know a further s- uh, escalation here of uh, you know the challenge between the two sides. It's, you know, the United States announced a second round of uh, sanctions against individuals. Most of them have laughed off the impact. Uh, one bank was named. The uh, Europeans are also working on their own set of uh, of sanctions. But by and large, the response has been so weak and minimal to uh, what appears to be the usurpation of land. With uh, Certainly, you can't claim that even with the referendum that there's been adequate due process. It sends a message, and that's, that is the big problem, that it's not just what happened in the Crimea. It's, this, this was related, obviously, to what happened years ago in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And, but it's also related to what happened in Syria, that the message is out. So China will heat things up with the islands that it claims. North Korea is firing missiles into the sea. I met with Korean officials yesterday, and they're very concerned about the ramifications. And we don't necessarily think about, you know, so, what, what happens in, uh, in the furthest parts of Asia. Right, but the difference here than the, than the comparison with Syria is the reaction of the opposition or the reaction of those who are who are being taken over, so to speak. I mean, the, when the government, when when the army or those who are responsible for taking over government buildings and making this transition arrived from Russia, there was no opposition, correct? Yeah, well, Mike. The comparison to Syria was about the failure of the West right. to carry out the actions that it right. just sent a message. Week is not what happened inside Syria, mm-hmm. which is totally different, and and the uh, origin of it. Is different but when well. there's a strong opposition, isn't there? Isn't it naturally a stronger West? You know what I mean by that? Like when there's a a strong voice within the country, so the the U.S. intervention or U.S. support at least looks like it has some potency to it. But the West, uh, I can I would say by the perception of the people in Syria, failed them. Did not give a strong response. Right. You can't find a case in in any of the upheaval states in uh, Egypt. We certainly. The voice that was heard was seen to be a contrary voice supporting the Muslim Brotherhood. It was interpreted as interpre- uh, interpreted as supporting the Muslim Brotherhood in uh, in each of the countries. The only place where we interceded was 
in Libya, obviously earlier in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now Afghanistan's headed for an election on, in the first week in April, I think April 5th. Uh, the United States is being told to, to get out. They, they want to sign an agreement, a security arrangement, which would have given them an, an ongoing presence, and there's a lot of opposition to it. Um, so if you look at all these recent incidents, the United States and the West as a whole has their per- the perception of the, of the stance and of their willingness to stand up, even in terms of Iran. When Class C took place, the, the, the ship, Iran had pay, has paid with no consequence. There's been no price. They, they, they ship missiles they, that, that involve Iraq and everything else. There are, are thousands of people going from Iraq into, into Syria to fight Shiites that are organized by, by Iran and its agents. There's never a price. So it's open season. So why shouldn't uh, Putin derive from this? that, you know, he'll get slapped on the wrist, they may try to do some stuff that, that's peripheral. If we really want to do stuff, if we would inc- sharply increase oil production, lower the price, Russia's the biggest exporter, they would pay a heavy price when the price of, of gas is. We've done this before when the price of oil was, uh, was dropped so low that the Russians were screaming and yelling. These steps, you know, slapping sanctions on individuals, some of whom have no assets in the United States or you know, say that they don't care whether they can visit the United States or not. So even a greater case for energy independence. Uh, well, we are energy independent, uh, but now I'm talking about greater energy export because it's Europe that is really the problem here because they depend on Russia for their uh, gas, especially, and oil, a large part of it comes from uh, Russia. And Russia is trying to control all the resources. They're making deals with Iran now. They're, they, they're going to sell another nuclear reactor, and they're going to be paid in oil. Um, the, the gold for oil deal that Turkey signed and others that, and that we know that Russia is involved in. So Russia's goal is to control the flow of all, all gas and oil into Europe, the energy that goes into Europe. So it has an iron hold, uh, hold on it. Uh, for them, shutting it off means that they lose money, too. So it's not right. a one-way street. It may not be in their best interest to go ahead and shut it off. Uh, so, and that's the only difference really between North America and Europe, the, uh, the, uh, energy tie to Russia at this point. Well, it's also the geography. Right. I mean, there are a lot of, uh, considerate things that, that, uh, um, make it, uh, of greater concern. And the issue now is what happens in Moldova, what happens in other areas. The feeling is that Latvia and Lithuania are not going to be, uh, while they're subject to pressure, are not going to be uh, taken over. They, they have NATO membership. There's common defense agreements. And Moldova doesn't. And Russia has always seen that as, as part. And traditionally, it's going back and forth between Russia and Romania, et cetera, and uh, cities like Kishinev and Chernovitz. What do, people, what do the people in Moldova want? I think the people of Moldova probably would want to sustain their independence, uh, but there are strong ties, and the economic conditions in Moldova are not good, as they were not in the Ukraine. Uh, the, I think the hope on the part of people in the Crimea, not only because you have the Russian forces there, and it is somewhat of a unique circumstance when you have the Russian bases and the traditional interests, etc., but you know the whole Ukraine's economic conditions are, are horrific, and the amount of debt, the the uh, conditions and the West, you know, could be saddled with an additional burden of trying to stabilize uh, the Ukraine 
by having to pour in billions of dollars. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmnam.org. I saw a great quote in one of the headlines this week. It may not be a cold war, but it's a chilly rivalry. Uh, one of the reasons it's only a chilly rivalry, by the way, is because of the, uh, uh, the weaker leadership uh, in the United States, I believe, than compared to when the Cold War was in full swing. With that in mind, with the, with the joking approach or the humorous approach that the other side is taking towards sanctions, is it time for the U.S. to stop issuing sanctions and making public statements about sanctions? Well, we have to do something, and at least the sanctions uh, are, are a step. You know, sanctions against Iran worked. The sanctions against Russia are nothing close to it. And we even see the diminution in the impact of the Iranian uh, sanctions now. And and it's not just uh, now. The United States, you know, the, the Georgia invasion took place under President Bush. And we did see, you know, obviously different stance when in Cuba or over with President Reagan. But uh, the... the um, the messages that we gave and the messages we continue to give, and it's it's the whole West. You know, Merkel seems to be closest to, to taking a strong stand, but even there you see the hesitancy, the concern about the ramifications, the, the unwillingness. There's nobody who's ever suggested sending in one soldier or, or doing anything along the border. France was ready to, and their planes were on the tarmacs, ready to, to bomb Syria when the United States had our, we had our ships there and everything, and were, I would say, disappointed or, or and surprised when the United States backed off. But the the message of weakness again. I keep saying this that it's mm-hmm. not what we do. We may have good reasons for certain actions. It's the perception of it right. over there. It's how do they see it? And you know, there was a big controversy this week because of statements that the Minister of Defense made, Yalom, who uh, again against the Secretary of State. Army against the Secretary of State. Well, or aim, aimed at the Secretary, Secretary of State. State. Later, it was against the administration, against the president, and he said he has apologized in a conversation with Secretary Hagel, the Secretary of Defense. The administration to, uh, this morning is saying it was not it, and they want more. Uh, he did say harsh things in, a, in what was supposed to be a closed forum, but in front of a large group, and um, uh, they, they, he talked about the danger to the state and to the security that the United States didn't do anything and leads to, um, uh, and, and the concern about now, about Iran, that he, he who opposed unilateral Israeli action against Iran said that he's now leaning towards it. Uh, there are people who are, critis- who are critical of the words, and you know the U.S.-Israel military cooperation has been good, but then Benny Gantz, uh, who's the head of the IDF, the chief of staff, also made some interesting statements that got less coverage but he talked about Israel's capability of carrying out military operations in Iran, about the, that they had conducted dozens of covert operations and dozens of secret activities, uh, some last week, and, as he said, quote, as we speak, unquote, which certainly should peak interest. In, in well, peak interest is right. What, what does that mean? Obviously, it didn't take place in Iran. And he said some far away and some closer by. So, well, we know that the, what they've done in Syria, and we know that they carried out uh, uh, some attacks. Um, 
but Israel, you know, has been on on uh, er, er, alert because of the situation on both borders, north and south. Uh, the the bomb that was placed on the border that uh, wounded three and uh, three mildly and one seriously, one soldier seriously, and Israel retaliated against the Syrian army, even though it was likely carried out by Hezbollah. But the Syrian army is in char- charge of this area, and they said, you know, we hold. Uh, President Assad to account. It's his responsibility. Uh, I think that they hit uh, Hezbollah sites as well. That they, they did recently, as you know, the convoy that was coming, and they said this was retaliation. This attack was retaliation. But they don't need excuses. We know that there's a buildup. We know that uh, Hamas, uh, Hezbollah, has set up an advanced base on the northern side of the Golan, and they to be used to support actions against Israel as well as troops fighting in uh, in Syria, and Hezbollah faces a, a serious backlash. There have been hundreds, maybe 500, 600 or more of their troops have been killed. We know that the um, resentment on the part of the people has has continues to grow, um, but the, their, their involvement is so deep, and obviously their patron, Iran, wants them there. They played a key role in the retaking of this critical village on the Lebanese border that opens up transit routes and may enable the Syrian army, which is uh, still formidable, uh, to to take on the rebels who are so busy fighting each other that they do little damage. Boy, you just went around the region really fast. Uh, that, no, this is just this is just Syria. I, I understand. You still went around the region quickly. Um, <laughs> as Syria continues to adamantly uh, deny any involvement in the bombing that uh, injured the Israeli soldiers, uh, the one that you mentioned uh, Israel retaliated for. Uh, but now I understand uh, where they're coming from. They, they, they would blame Hezbollah. You're saying essentially it's the same team. It, it is exactly, yes, it is the same team. But they, they are the sovereign, and there's a big Syrian military presence. It's estimated that 60% of the border of Syria is controlled today by uh, various rebel groups. That the and this is obviously a major concern to Jordan, to Israel, to others. Uh, we know the border with Iraq is now completely open and porous, and eight to fifteen thousand Iraqi Shiites have crossed the border are fighting inside uh, Iraq, which is a major concern and another issue that we really should talk about because nobody even mentions it and talks about this this flow of uh, of uh, manpower and that the the uh, there are. Iraqi intelligence who said that one of the terrorist groups, the al-Haq group, gets about a million and a half dollars a month from Iran just a day alone. Uh, but they, they did interviews with guys from some of the cemeteries in Najaf and elsewhere, and they talk about every day getting three, four bodies, a single cemetery, from uh, fighters who were killed in in uh, in Syria. So anyway, the, the... That indicates cooperation between Iran and Iraq? This is well, Iraq, Iranian dominance of, of large parts of, of uh, Iraq and certainly of, over the government, and yes, cooperation there with the Assad forces, pro-Assad forces in uh, in Syria. But these are Iraqi Shiites who are going to fight there. We know that Iraqi Sunnis have gone to fight on the other side as well. What do you think when you woke up this morning to this story that the biggest Gaza terror tunnel has now been uncovered by the IDF? It's, uh, you know, these are ongoing efforts. The IDF has warned about it. The, the world doesn't pay any attention to it. Again, Hamas pays a price only because Israel reacts. The rest of the world says that it uh, talks about having to, to deal with them. 
uh, they talk about, they speculate about, you know, conciliatory efforts. And you see what the real intent is. And, and we know on both borders the intent is to kidnap Israeli soldiers at any price and to, to hold them hostage to do what they did with um, uh, Gilad Shalit, to gain release of prisoners, to to um, put Israel on the defensive. And they know how much, how far Israel will go to, to defend its uh, its citizens and its soldiers. So this big uh, tunnel should again be a warning, though, to the West that keeps saying that Israel has to open up the tunnels, the, the cement supply, other supplies. There's no shortage. It's being diverted into the use, into building these tunnels, into to, to taking huge amounts of cement and cement slabs to line the walls and to, to engage in this kind of construction. Well, that's why I'm glad there's a video online of this latest one, because, it, you know, we hear tunnels, so you know the vision that everybody has, you know, <laughs> taking small uh, uh, instruments and digging out a, a little thing to, uh, to crawl through. This is a lot different than that. We've joked in the past about, you know, what it, what it would be worth if it was in Manhattan, but it's not a joke. It's it's just it's it's a real facility, and as you just described, one that's very sturdy, and uh, until it's uncovered by uh, by Israel, it's being put to use to uh, increase terror. And and it's and people say to me, why why can't they have sonar devices? Why don't they have other things that? First of all, it's a long border. Second of all, they go very deep. They find ways of bypassing uh, what happens. Second, you know that this week we, we've seen uh, the conflict again between Hamas and and the uh, PA. That in Hamas broke up a demonstration of pro Abbas, pro PA uh, groups in Gaza. They arrested uh, 13, 14 people, and the PA arrested 40 Hamas groups, the people in in Nablus. So the escalation of uh, tension between them. And, uh, we, we, you know, we heard the comments during Abbas's visit that he's consistently renounced violence when we see the incitement, the, the, uh, the comments, the, the actions that they take is anything but, but seeming to, to renounce violence against Israel. And then when they make one step forward, to make two steps back, there was a report that, that Schott said, well, maybe in the end we can recognize the Jewish state. And then he said, I never said it. We're never going to recognize it. They put down all the red lines. And then there's competition between Hamas and Hezbollah, Hamas and the, and the PA, but also because Hamas's economic conditions have worsened as Syria, as Egypt rather, has clamped down on them. Uh, they are now talking about coming back into Iran's sphere and and uh, closing up to, to Iran. And we don't know if the Classy was intended for Islamic Jihad, which is Iran's main uh, front group in in. Gaza, or whether this was going to be shared with the uh, uh, with the with the Hamas. By the way, do you think Abbas is handling the whole Israel recognition topic uh, any differently, or would Arafat have handled it differently? I always envision Arafat as you know, sort of you know, getting out there and saying, "Okay, you want recognition? We recognize Israel." And Abbas, for whatever reason, maybe it's bad business for him at home, or you could explain to us why, refuses to give in on any of this. Well, it's not unpopular at home, and uh, the only difference is that uh, Abbas dresses in a suit, sort of like Rouhani. Uh, you know, it's a different face and a different image, but we see that the policies remain the same. He's done nothing, neither t- to really uh, move the pots this forward by saying that, that he would recognize Israel or uh, not compromising on the right of return. And the, the more you put these markers down, the more you make it in, put it in such absolute terms, the harder it will be ever to negotiate or to come to some sort of uh, 
agreement or understanding. Right. And what is the demand? The demand always is that Israel release the fourth tranche of prisoners. That that if they don't do that, we're going to go to the United Nations. How many pr- how many prisoners are in that batch? The last batch is uh, twenty nine. And the likelihood of them being released? Right now, very low. Even Livni. If you live in the Minister of Justice and who's in charge of the peace negotiations, so there can't be a prisoner released now if there's no framework agreement. And we see that the talks in, in the United States between Abbas and President uh, Obama did not seem to go, go very far and didn't seem to make much progress. And Secretary Kerry is still involved trying to move it, but we're, there's a, a deadline coming up on March 29th when they were supposed to reach some sort of an understanding, at least for an extension the end of the year, or, or I think Israel's uh, asking for and saying we're not going to release the next tranche. And, and someone like Livni would say that with the previous three releases, there was a framework that there were negotiations going on. They were they were engaged, and therefore says that that uh, she said that therefore it was justified. In this one, where you're going to have guys with a lot of blood on their hand getting out, um, they. They, she, she, let alone the prime minister and others, has said that that they should not do it. This is the most criminal of the of all the groups. Yes. Someone, even th- though the others were pretty bad, and some already have been rearrested. Yeah, that's engaged in activities. That's my point. Cetera, but the, this is the worst. And now they're demanding the release of Barghouti and others. Barghouti has five life sentences for for. for his you think he'll ever be part of a, a prisoner release, or is that a red line they'll never cross? Well, Israel says they will not release them now, and they will not whether ever. I don't know. Um, By the way, I want one story that, that got almost no attention, which is very sad, especially for me, because I was very involved with them, and that was the information that the Mossad and others in Israel put out about the eight young men, eight people who crossed the border, tried to cross the border of Iran to escape uh, in the hands of smugglers about 20 years ago. Yeah, so this was a New York Times article about and, it. And um, they were declared to be dead, and the chief rabbi uh, issued a sock on it. But the evidence, unfortunately, that they were able to, uh, to put together, there are three that are still unaccounted for. But I even met with Zarif. M- meaning that the last time they were seen was in Iran? Yes. And then they just disappeared as they tried to escape? Yeah, they, 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 they were smugglers. They didn't have any idea or anything. They, they, they're smugglers who took many people across the border with Pakistan, some to Turkey, but primarily the Pakistani border. And, you know, these are very unsavory characters, and it was always risky. Uh, there were cases of people who were killed or they were robbed and left penniless and destitute by the, the smugglers. Uh, but in this case, there were sightings. There were people who came to me with evidence about it. I went. I even met with Zarif, who is now the foreign minister, several times. He was then ambassador of Iran to the UN to enlist his help, and he had promised me certain things. And of course, and in those meetings, now he didn't do anything. And in those meetings, someone like him would say they simply have no idea about their whereabouts. No, they're going to look. And I gave him names of prisons. I gave him names of of sites of people who would know and who were contacts. And every every time the the answer came back months later that we have no information uh, on it. There's another story regarding Iran, if I can, just for a second, that I think is really, uh, I mean, remarkable, that satellites, U.S. satellites picked up uh, a mock in a, in a um, shipbuilding yeah. dock right on the Persian Gulf. Yeah, maybe you could explain this one to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, 
it tells you how far Iran is going. And all those who say, oh, they're crippled by the sanctions, they can't do this. They built a mock uh, copy of the USS Lincoln, which is a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier that we have in the Persian Gulf. This number is 68, and, and the, the mock that they have has fake planes on it and carries the number 68. It's still in dry dock, but it's to be towed to the uh, Persian Gulf from the Gachin uh, shipyards. And the purpose was? So that's a good question. This is not the first time that we've seen them do this, but you know that they have played havoc with with their fast boats, with our ships, uh, and we're talking about destroyers and big ships that are in the Persian Gulf. Um, so the USS Abraham Lincoln, this is a mock-up, but I think it's only about two-thirds the size of it, uh, and it's a, the, the Fifth Fleet people call it the target barge. So it could be used for propaganda value where they will show how they blew up the, uh, the, this mock-up or bomb it and say, you know, that they hit the uh, uh, real thing. And uh, it's intimidation, but it's, it's meant to, for probably for diversionary purposes and propaganda purposes, they have done things like this in the past, but never on this scale. And and again, you know, people will laugh because it's it, it's sort of funny. You know, it's a big barge, uh, and you can't really uh, land planes and, and I guess take off on it. But it's it just tells you the degree to which Iran goes that a country that's supposedly suffering under the sanctions can divert resources for this. Uh, they, they are anyway, as I said. Yeah, but what gets me is that any kid with iMovie can go ahead and create a video of the Lincoln being exploded. You know what I mean? Like this right. is this is really going to a great extent if that's the reason they're doing it. Uh, yes, but they've harassed our warships. They they um, they have these remotely piloted um, uh, planes, you know, uh, sort of drones that uh, with the carry surveillance pods that also could carry rockets. Uh, we, we know, by the way, Hezbollah has them, too, which is why Israel is developing the Iron Beam, which is a means to shoot down uh, drones, and especially drones uh, which are unpiloted planes to, that can carry heavy payloads uh, across the border from Gaza to, to Israel. And you can't use, um, you don't want to use Iron Dome against it, but this will be a, a laser system that can take uh, these down. Unbelievable. What do you think of Harvard students going to Arafat's grave? Look, I think it's part of a pattern that we see, and, and you know, I, I don't blame them. I blame those who, who organized, or and they did issue a statement, which uh, I thought was uh, much better than anything that had been said till now, explaining that they that, that they didn't mean to pay homage to him, and they certainly wouldn't have, that this was just part of the trip. But for the young people who are on it, 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 it does have had impact. And for, you know, the pictures that are being now with Facebook and Twitter and everything that go to countless numbers of people, and it shows that, you know, the diminution of, of uh, understanding and of uh, sensitivity, if not worse. And, again, I think the statement tries to clarify it, and they're saying, look, this was an educational trip. They went there to meet people from the PA to understand all sides. You know, I don't see the other side doing the same thing. I don't see them taking people to visit Ramin's grave when they bring missions. They bring them there to propagandize them, and we see the impact of that propaganda in the BDS movement and in, in you know, Loyola in Chicago. The students voted 26 to nothing, the student government to, to divest from seven companies like Caterpillar and SodaStream and others that do business in, uh, in the West Bank in Israel yesterday. So people who think that this is, uh, you know, 
a marginal concern and why we established the task force, national task force on this, as we did on Iran, because these are real concerns and they have real manifestations in the United States today. Finally, last week, you'll recall we spoke and made a, uh, uh, and you were able to provide analysis regarding the rockets coming in from the south and the uh, the Gaza area being dominated by terrorist groups, no matter which one took uh, responsibility for the rockets against Israeli cities. Seven days later, any quieter in that region? Well, it is uh, somewhat quieter. Israel struck back. There, there were much during the... Hello? Malcolm? Malcolm, are you there? Yes, I'm here. All right. I hope everything's I okay. This whole system got zapped. That's it was the Iranians. I told you they have these superpowers. Boy, you're giving them all the credit when you have about 50 other countries you could blame? <laughs> I could think maybe it's the Ukrainians. And by the way, when when you say that, you know, we, we have uh, we have other concerns about the Jews in the Ukraine, and there are a lot of reports, you know, about blood in the streets. These are not true, but obviously it's a great concern about what could happen there. But the other area of real concern is the Jews in Venezuela now because of the unrest and the disruptions and the manifestations that are taking place there of grave concern, and there's still a significant Jewish community there that we're working with and that uh, people should be concerned about. But it's, it's part of uh, we see that the unrest that we see in the Middle East could easily be replicated in countries in, in South America as well. But Venezuela yeah. is a key one. Something you've told us about for I don't know how many years at this point. Um, I thank you. Uh, we will reconvene Bezrat Hashem next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We have to give a, we have to give a Mazel Tov a shout out to Daniela Holmline, who Mitzvah Hashem next uh, week will become a Kala. Will be get married. She's a Kala, and uh, I want to send the Mazel Tov to my son and daughter-in-law Hanochan Alana Holmline in Baltimore, and wish them much nachas. I want to wish uh, the entire mishpacha a very special mazel tov. That is wonderful news. Will this, I, I hate to be selfish in asking this, Malcolm, will this in any way affect next Friday morning's weekly update? Well, that that was part of the reason for that. Up, I don't know. <laughs> it, <laughs> yes, but I'll negotiate this with you. The Depends how long the, uh, the second dance set goes, huh? Exactly. <laughs> All right, Mazel Tov, enjoy. Must be no greater feeling, and uh, we will, in fact, alert our audience if the Simcha in any way alters our weekly update schedule. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us Fridays here for the weekly update at JM in the AM.